Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Leah Batucci, a musician based in New York whose new album Acoustic Shadows is out now on SA Recordings. It's based on a set of performances and an installation that took place back in 2018 in the hollow body of the Deutzer Bridge in Cologne, this huge resonant space that Leah utilized for a set of performances for brass, saxophones and drums. The record captures the performances for brass and for drums and obviously it's a completely different context to present these works. The original installation in the bridge was an eight-channel installation. The record is obviously in stereo but thanks to Leah's incredible spatial sensitivity, it stands as a record in its own right, completely separate and distinct from the installation while still harking back to those events that took place in the bridge itself. It's a really, as I say during our conversation, just a beautiful record, but obviously one, when I talk to Leah, I understand that so much effort has gone into generating this dialogue with the space that allows the space to speak most fluently. So you can check out Leah's website for more information on Acoustic Shadows and everything else that she's done as well at leah-batucci.com. She's also on Instagram at Lil, L-I-L, Batucci. And as always, you can go to attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening for more information on Leah's pics and links to her stuff as well. One more thing before we begin, this conversation was recorded a few weeks ago prior to the world waking up to the racist brutality which is taking place all around the world at the moment. I feel that at least some of what we were talking about during this discussion would have been placed in that context, so worth flagging up. Okay, that's it. Leah picked some excellent records and we had a good time talking about them. I think you'll enjoy this one. This is Leah Batucci on Crucial Listening. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for coming on. So I want to start by asking a few questions about your latest album, Acoustic Shadows, which came out on SA Recordings back in April. Um, And I want to start specifically with the title, which I initially thought was just a nice turn of phrase, but now Mm -hmm. I understand it's a label given to an actual acoustic phenomena or event. Um, So could you tell me a bit about Acoustic Shadows? Uh, as a, as in what they are, but also how mm-hmm. that ended up becoming the title of the record as well. Yeah. Um, so Acoustic Shadows is something that I came across doing research about the phenomena of sound, um, about psychoacoustics and, um, you know, sonic reflections and, and things like that. And um, I came across this phrase. Um, it was used for, uh, during the American Civil War, there would be a group of, sol- like two groups of soldiers you know, able to see each other from across um, a distance of a landscape. And uh, there, as one army would march towards the other, 
they would notice that uh, there would be sort of like sonic dead zones where they would be able to hear the other encampment, but only for like a few minutes. And it was the changes in the landscape that dictated the way that the sound uh, was heard. So it's an acoustic uh, phenomenon that is basically like when there's an object blocking a sound wave or um, if there's like wave cancellation within that sound as it travels across, a, you know, a distant landscape. Yeah, there's just like these dead zones that happen. So it's it's a process of phenomena that um, I found was present within the bridge, uh, which was the site of where Acoustic Shadows, the composition, took place. I mean, it sounds like, from what I understand, um, this bridge seemed to be a really characterful place in terms of its acoustic response and profile. And you clearly had ways of uh, identifying the kind of acoustic profile of the space. I understand that you did some sweeps of the space in order to get a, a feel for its acoustic response. Um, but what I want to ask about is, how do you write a piece for a specific site if it's not immediately accessible to you all the time? I mean, this seems to be a composition that's so intimately linked to the space in which it was recorded. How do you go about writing a, a, a piece when you don't have that space at hand? Yeah, um, it was a little bit challenging, you know, because the, the site is in Germany and I live in New York. Um, I was able to do a site visit, um, I think, four months in advance of the show. And during that time, I was able to make some recordings um, just of like the ambient sound in the space. There was a tram that would move across the bridge uh, mm. on top roadway so that would you know generate a fair amount of sound so it was kind of you know doing a site visit to just kind of like creatively analyze what was going on in the space sonically that was really important and then you know using those recordings that I made for reference um, I also had the organizers do a number of acoustical analysis tests so um, one of them was a, a frequency sweep that um, I was able to analyze to get the sort of room tone of the space. Um, the other test that we did was an, uh, an impulse test, an impulse response test. So that would show you, um, it shows how long the decay um, of the echo is in the space. So it was kind of like a, the process was sort of um, a combination of a creative analysis and a much more technical um, scientific analysis of what was actually going on in the space. Um, I also was able to get uh, plan and section drawings of the bridge so I could really, you know, see what the physical layout was, which really, um, you know, had a big impact on how I composed the piece. Um, just in terms of timings and, um, you know, because the bridge was 440 meters long and I knew that I was going to have um, audience that was that were roving, that were, you know, not in fixed positions. Mm. So a lot of the music um, in terms of how long a section would take uh, was sort of scaled to the bridge. It was scaled to the diff the um, amount of time that it took a person to walk from one side of the bridge to the other, which was about four and a half, five minutes. In addition to that, um, a lot of the rules of the music were contingent on the acoustic characteristics of the space. So I used the room tone that I found through those, um, through those sine wave sweeps. It was about C2. And so I used that as the harmonic basis of the piece, because the idea was to really activate 
the bridge through sound. And so if you if you use the if you use the the room tone as the harmonic basis, you're creating something that is pretty much in sympathetic resonance with the space itself. See, I I love the idea of doing that and then getting to the space and then hearing that realized for the first time all of that theoretical underpinning that you put beneath the piece then coming to live in the space what was it like playing the piece in the space or the pieces rather in the in the space for the first time after you composed them i mean it was amazing especially with um the brass piece Mm. uh we were only so we were super limited in the number of rehearsals that we could have you know organizing a brass octet to like all get into the space Um, There's a lot of restrictions uh, in terms of like entering the space. So, you know, it was uh, it was really amazing. And I we basically did like one, two rehearsals uh, and then the performance. So I, I was just amazed that I mean, it was a really complicated project. You know, it was three musical compositions that turned into an eight channel installation. It was very technically complex. So I was just kind of amazed that it was even working at all. Um, <laughs> like I just, I assumed that it was going to somehow not work. Um, and, you know, it was a risk. Like I took a lot of risks in doing a project like this from a technical and also artistic standpoint. And so, yeah, like the first time I heard the brass octet, like really, you know, happening, it, it was amazing. And I, I was just, I was just, um, overjoyed that it actually was working (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned there obviously you've got the technical and artistic standpoints there i mean one thing i think is that whilst there's so much going on in terms of resonance within this piece from a technical perspective it's also just incredibly beautiful piece of music like harmonically it's so rich and lovely is it is it easy to incorporate the musicality that you want to bring to these pieces when you're also very much trying to be sensitive to the space and ensure that you are accommodating the space in your compositions? Is there a balancing act involved there? Yeah, absolutely. Part of the way that I composed these pieces was I wasn't I wasn't really like writing out specific things for people to play. It was more that I gave them a set of pitches to play and then a set of techniques to play those pitches. So one of the big techniques of this piece um, is something that I called a decay swell. So it's a rule that is based on the acoustic of the space where you play a note, a continuous pitch, you start out uh, very quiet, and then you uh, work up to full intensity over the course of a certain amount of time. And then when you reach full intensity, so, you know, uh, forte, you uh, stop very quickly. It's a hard cut. That allows the sound to sort of echo in the space um, quite a long time after the note stops being played. So, you know, it it was that kind of thing uh, that allowed a certain latitude for improvisation for the players. So it was really um, had a lot to, the musicality had a lot to do with the way that the players approached the material. Did you get any opinions from them as to how they found the experience of playing it? I got a lot of really great feedback from them and um, some in kind of like a similar vein where they were like, wow, I can't believe that worked. (laughs) (laughs) It was really, it was challenging for like a number of logistical reasons too, because, you know, I had a brass octet spread throughout, you know, 440 meters 
of a very dark bridge so the players couldn't see each other they couldn't cue off of each oh, other wow so it presented a number of like logistical challenges and yeah i mean they the the players seem to really um be a lot of them seem to be very moved by the experience i have to say well Leah, likewise it's a fabulous record i implore people to go and check it out um where is the best place for them to do that would that be on Bandcamp? uh yeah the record is available on Bandcamp, and it's also available on the sa records site cool well let's talk about your important records then Leah. you've brought three to the table um one question i like to ask is how you thought about the term important when you were making your selections is there a particular way that you understood or interpreted the term important when you pick this list of three albums? Yeah, I mean, these uh, the three albums are a combination of old flames and current obsessions, I guess. Um, they're mm. records that had a lot of impact on the way that I conceive of music. Um, and they're also just records that make me feel. They're, they're records that have um, a lot of emotion behind them. And I think that there is something very powerful about that. Well, let's dive in. Uh, Pick whichever one you want to talk about first, if you give me the name of it, and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. Um, you want to talk about Black Saint and the Sinner Lady? I definitely do, yeah. Okay. So yeah, Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Amazing, amazing record. Um, I discovered that when I was probably about 16 years old. I was, a, I was really into jazz um, at the time. I still am really into jazz, obviously. Um, <laughs> But this, this record was very different than many other jazz records that I had heard. Um, probably the closest thing that it comes to would be Miles Davis's uh, Sketches of Spain. Mm. But there's something way more visceral, way more chaotic in uh, Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. Uh, Miles is very reserved. He's very delicate. He's very you know, premeditated. And there's something about like the delightful chaos of Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, along with the very beautiful orchestration. Um, and when I say orchestration, I mean the way that the music is sort of conceived for big band. Yes. Um, and then of course, you know, the Spanish influences, you know, and Mingus as such a is such an iconoclast. I mean, he really is um, such a pivotal figure. Um, and I think that this record was sort of the beginning of when I started getting into a little bit more out jazz. It, it, it kind of like radicalized me in a lot of ways. <laughs> uh, my attitude, jazz. I stopped. I stopped listening. I didn't listen as I started listening also around that same time to like late Coltrane mm. um, and some Eric Dolphy, Albert Eiler, um, and things like that. That really, yeah, it changed what I thought jazz as a music could do. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I'm so glad that you picked this one because it made me go right back into it. Do you remember how you first heard it? Like what brought you into contact with this record? Um, there, I was, in, I was in high school jazz ensemble and there was this uh, very nerdy pianist in my school who was um somehow had found this record and and gave it to me do you have do you have any memories that come to mind when you think back to those early experiences of listening to this record like where are you how are you listening to this album i remember 
listening to it, and um, like a lot of other records that are very pivotal for me, uh, I remember thinking, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> like, yeah. really feeling challenged by it in this way that was very unique. Yeah, just feeling, listening to it and feeling fascinated but conflicted. Like, I wasn't sure if this if I liked it or not. It was really um, something that kind of, like, got me out of a more square perspective. And is that the way in which he's treating jazz? Is it sort of a conflict in the in the way you'd experienced jazz up until that point and what Mingus was doing to your notion of what that was? Or? Yeah, I think it was just like the music had a much more visceral quality. It was much more emotionally raw. It wasn't really about, you know, the technicality of, you know, being able to like play really fast, you know, like, like Charlie Parker or something like that. It was, it mm. was about, um, and also like re- it, it really, um, to me, it was like a way that I had not heard a jazz ensemble used before. Yeah. I mean, like Ellington has some pretty interesting orchestration in a lot of his big band works, but this was like completely different. I mean, yeah, it was, it was very interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I, you, said the word visceral several times i mean it's such a boisterous sounding record you kind of imagine i mean i do anyway all the players like rubbing shoulders together squeezed into this small space sweating Mm -hmm. profusely and just blaring out this music all on top of each other there's something quite raucous about it i think yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's also important to remember that this music is uh, revolutionary music. This is music born out of a very intense experience, the mm. mid-20th century African-American experience of, you know, not accepting violence towards them anymore. You know, it's it's really about um, fighting back. And there was a lot of, like, revolutionary stuff going on at that time. Um, in a lot of black communities. So, you know, to me, it's a, it's a sort of like radically black record. Um, and there's something very American about that. There's something very, I don't know, very, um, I think that's why it's such an emotional album is that revolutionary kind of spirit. And do you think that's why you also connect with the other kind of outer jazz that you mentioned, like Isla and Dolphy and stuff as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as a saxophonist, um, I was always really interested to hear voices like that, mm. that were um, very different. You know, Eric Dolphy on bass clarinet was a huge influence for me. And the way that Albert Eiler approached playing the saxophone, I mean, nobody sounds like that. That is no. a, that's a very right. uh, unique kind of sound. So anytime that I heard somebody that was like contributing something singular um, I was always very interested. Yeah, Isla is, uh, that's one that I discovered last year. I read Val Wilmer's Serious Is Your Life, and she talks a lot about Albert Isla. And his <laughs> stuff with Milford Graves, uh, just absolutely unreal. Like, their, their combination is just explosive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I think, I think it's the, the combination of, you know, hearing a unique voice, and then also understanding the political and, you know, emotional uh, context that the music comes from. And is it a record you still listen to now? You know, honestly, I have not listened to it in quite a long time. And 
you know, thinking about it and digging it up uh, recently was 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 really nice because I, I haven't listened to it in, in a very long time, actually. And are there any other Mingus records that you connect with as well, other than this one? Yeah, I mean, the famous Ah uh, Um uh-huh. record. Uh, I think that there's also like a live record that I that I have. I think it's like live at Antilles. Okay. Um, a lot of his live recordings are amazing um, because he was just he was such a. I mean, he he was a you know a tortured person. He was a you know yeah not the most stable person, and he didn't have uh, such an easy time of things. And um, yeah, there's something in the live performances that are really great. So if people are interested in uh, other works of Mingus, um, I, I would actually probably direct them to the live recordings. Cool. So let's go on to your second record then, Leah, if you give me the name of it and again a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next record is De Natura Sonorum by, per- by Bernard Parmigiani. And um, I discovered this record um, maybe like 10 years ago or so. Um, I think it's just a really wonderful example of musique concrète. Um, and what the possibilities are of using pre-recorded sound. I've always been interested in uh, collage, and um, I have a degree in visual art. So, you know, the concept of collage is is very relevant to, to my work, certainly. And I think that this is just like a very elegant, very um, explosive album. And it really, to me, when I first discovered it, um, sort of showed me what the possibilities of working with electroacoustic sound um, and also with tape. Do you remember how you first heard this one as well? This, a good friend who uh, is an abstract turntablist uh, turned me on to this record. You mentioned that it also showed for you the possibilities of working with tape. What specifically mm-hmm. about this record kind of opened those doors for you? I guess it was just, you know, the, the concept that you could record an instrument, um, and then there was this amazing process of transformation that can occur um, when you use that recording, you know, the way that you could process that recording. I think that there's, yeah, there's a, there's a, this very magical process of transformation that happens uh, where an object is decontextualized from what it is, and then it just becomes pure sound. I think that's something that with this album, I pick up on quite a lot and I also think it's very much in my mind to the way that he's arranging these sounds in sequence like there seems to be some sense of causality and relationship going on between these sounds and the way that they ricochet off each other which I guess distinguishes a collage work or a concrete work that feels like it has some kind of intention and common thread running through it and just a splatter of nice noises you know. Yeah, well, and there's one sequence within that record that really always just gets me where it's um, it starts out with like 
some kind of like percussive sound. It, it sounds like almost like marbles um, being thrown against a metal surface. Mm. Um, that kind of like turns into water sounds and then that turns into rain. It's like this really interesting sort of like compositional arc there where you're taking a sound and then extending it to this like other direction. Um, you're like finding some timbral quality of that sound that you're sort of exploiting to, um, yeah, to, to sort of move that sound into different territory. Mm. And so many of those sounds, I mean, that sound you refer to, the marbles against metal, it's something that I found wearing headphones. Uh, I was just completely struck by how physical suddenly the sound becomes. I mean, is there a, a place that you go or, or a, a, a setup that you have to kind of dig into a record like this in a kind of optimum state? You mean like listening wise? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I have some nice studio monitors. So, uh, you know, my ideal listening scenario is um, through my monitors um, in my studio, which is like has a little bit of acoustic uh, acoustic treatment. So the sound really is able to be heard at like its maximum uh, quality. Is that where you uh, mix your own records as well and get a feel for how they they're sounding as well? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I am self-taught engineer, so um, I don't have any like formal training, but just through necessity and by virtue of it being uh, better for me to mix and uh, deal with my own and mix and edit my own recordings, um, I've sort of become like a self-taught engineer. So I definitely appreciate the yeah, good audio. I'm a bit of an audiophile these days, I suppose. <laughs> but this is a frustrating thing for me, you know, like if someone were to listen to acoustic shadows through computer speakers, I really have to wonder if that music has any kind of impact, really, um, because it is designed to be a very immersive or, you know, uh, complete, full body sonic experience. So, you know, I can't always account for the conditions that somebody's listening to something through. But, you know, I feel like most of my music, you know, translates much better through, you know, high quality audio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that I think feels more and more pertinent to talk about as time goes on. Is it something you think about a lot, the kind of nature of the listening experience and perhaps the direction in which we as a culture have taken in terms of our relationship with listening? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something that I am kind of perpetually frustrated by, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like phone and computer speakers don't reproduce lows. You just don't hear bass in the same kind of way. Mm. And earbuds, you know, earbuds are pretty terrible usually. It's just like not a good way to, to listen to music. But, you know, the fact is that that is how people do it. And so, you know, obviously I try in the mixing and mastering process to, you know, compensate for different listening environments, um, different listening setups. But it's uh, it's not always easy. <laughs> I think actually, you know, I did a live stream performance last night and, um, you know, that it, again is another example of me wondering, does this 
translate through a screen? Does this translate through someone's computer speakers? And it's kind of an existential crisis, I think, for a lot of experimental musicians whose work really relies on um, high-quality reproductions. Right, yeah. Because I guess, I mean, it's been... Uh, for me that seeing these streams coming out has been quite amazing like the the fact that i can you know wake up in the morning and tune into a performance by someone i really love on the you know other side of the world it sounds like i've just discovered the internet for the first time but you know what i mean it's um, really sp- special at the moment um yeah, but cool. i guess that's the thing it's the only thing available right now but i suppose that it's you know the fact that it goes out on maybe, I don't know, YouTube or some kind of streaming service, something that has characteristics of a lower form of concentrated engagement or like attention. It's not often that people go on YouTube and go, right, I'm going to really zone in here and blast it yeah. up on my big 50 inch projector and put my headphones on, you know? I mean, it's not, um, it's really not a substitute for the live experience. No. I have to think of it as something else completely. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it's um, it's an opportunity to make a music video, um, right. and I think that some people have been really exceptionally creative in the way that they have approached the live stream. You know, I've seen some streams that are like really amazing, where people have um, you know messed with the camera, and there was one that I saw where the guy was wearing a GoPro, um, so you could see everything that he was wow. seeing at playing. Yeah, and like, you know, people are doing some very inventive things with it. Um, but I don't think it is a substitute for a live performance. And I think it's important that people remember how how live performance is a unique thing, that there is something very real about sitting in a room and watching somebody do something in real life. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Because our, our lives are mediated through the screen these days, you know, this is what we have. And, you know, there's a lot of potential in live streaming to be really creative. How does it feel as a performer doing those performances? You know, it's horrible. Right, really? <laughs> yeah, it's really horrible. I mean, <laughs> you know, like, I'm, I feel I'm glad that I get to, like, connect with people in this way. But um, it's really strange as a performer to finish your performance and then just nothing happens. (laughs) Right. Yeah, of course. There's no audience feedback and you have to assume that you've been streaming the whole time. You know, it's possible that you screwed up somewhere and like you just did a performance and (laughs) it didn't even get broadcast. It's a little bit like screaming into the void. Right. Yeah. And then like emotionally afterwards, you know, I mean, it's really like, it's a little hard. I mean, it's a little bit like emotionally like difficult <laughs> to do it. <laughs> it's just like it's a big letdown kind of at the end. And it's nice, you know, like when your friends text you like that was great and, you know. Yeah. The moments that I'd really tune into are at the end of these performances where often the artists will bend down to the camera just to turn stuff off and be like, "Thank you very much." And right. <laughs> that that's the I guess that's the placeholder for applause or for, you know, for basically having some kind of social cue to wrap up these events. But suddenly it's there's there's not really a precedent for like, how do we say that this is now over? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think 
Next time I do one, I'm going to run an applause track at the end. <laughs> I think it will actually really help me. Leave it going for like three minutes and come out for an encore and uh, yeah, you know, yeah, really like have some fun. Yeah, thing. <laughs> well, um, with the uh, Bernard Parmigiani record, um, I wanted to ask as well, it, obviously he was part of the GRM for a certain period. Uh, did discovering this record kind of set you off into discovering any more GRM composers or were you already into some of the GRM stuff? Um, I was aware of, um, you know, Pierre-Henri, Pierre Schaefer, and a few other uh, GRM folk mm-hmm. um, at that point, I believe. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, the studio GRM things, although... Like many things in the 60s, uh, way too male-dominated. Uh-huh. You know, um, they're, you know, GRM is a wonderful organization that does important work. But, you know, at the time, we're very myopic in terms of supporting uh, female artists. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, but I do think that, like, the, the GRM music concrete of the 60s um, has definitely had a lot of impact for me. Are there any other particular composers within that crop that also resonated with you as well? You know, Eliane Radig, uh-huh. um, Pierre Schaefer's assistant. I would say that, you know, Radig um, probably, she, she was, I was going to, that was one of the records I was going to pick um, was uh, Trilogie de la Morte. Mm, yeah. Um, because that's another, that's another album that for me um, had a really big impact on the way that i thought about music but she didn't make the cut this time unfortunately <laughs> sorry about the three the well, three albums know, is ruthless huh it, it's brief but you know it's also the, uh Redig has been and rightfully so experiencing a big renaissance um in interest in her work uh which is long overdue and i'm very happy to to see Great, well, let's go to your final record, Leah. Uh, Again, if you could give me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Sure. So the last album is by uh, Haino Keiji and it's called Black Blues. So um, Black Blues is a double album. There's the soft version and then the violent version. And um, Haino Keiji was really into American blues musicians. So a number of those songs, I believe, are covers of Robert Johnson tunes um, that he reinterpreted in his Haino style. This record is amazing to me because the soft version is so extremely quiet. Hmm. It's like he's whispering in your ear. He is, <laughs> he's playing he's playing a electric guitar but not plugged in, which is you know quite a gesture. Right. Um, and I think gives the music um, a certain kind of like intimate quality. It's it's very much like, you know, in the blackest black of night, someone whispering into your ear. Um, it has 
It has a very, yeah, I've, I've never quite heard a record like this. Um, it's very, it's very amazing. Uh, so there's the soft record and then there's the violent record. So on the violent version, um, I believe it's all the same songs that yes. are reinterpreted, uh, super amplified. So, um, you know, the, the difference in between these two kind of like manic states of this album, I think are, is very fascinating. Um, like the idea of just reinterpreting your own, like reinterpreting songs in like such an extreme way, um, is interesting. And I discovered this record. I was, I think a freshman in college. So I was maybe 19 years old at the time. And, you know, hit, you know, Hino's amazing vocal style and, um, approach to the guitar, you know, I hadn't heard anything like that before. Um, so it was really, it was quite a discovery for me. Yeah. I mean, I think you mentioned that with these important records or many of these important records, it's not something you like straight away. I mean, was that the case with Black Blues as well? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think it's just like when I'm presented with a challenge, you know, there's something always very fascinating to me about like why I'm challenged in the ways that I am uh, by, by a piece of music. And yeah, I mean, I think that, I don't remember if I, I think I did actually like this one outright, mm. but definitely was like challenged by it. Um, this was around the same time that I was getting more into noise music proper, um, like electronic noise. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I just think it's a really super interesting conceptual uh, approach to an album. Um, but then also, you know, the, the final product of, you know, the experience of listening to these two albums side by side um, is, is, is wonderful. It's really moving. Yeah, I mean, so I haven't had loads of time with with these records, but I think it's so interesting that you have these mirrored versions of these songs. And not only that, but as you say, interpretations of existing blues material as well. There seems to be, obviously, there's like uh, an in intention carried through from the originals into the two versions and, uh, and a, a something that connects the soft versions to the violent versions as well but being someone who's spent a lot of time with these records does it become apparent to you like how say like um both versions you know for example see that my grave is kept clean how both mm -hmm. the soft and the violent versions are connected as interpretations of the same piece is that something that comes through after a while i think that it's um it's it's two different approaches to expressing something that's actually ultimately very similar. Uh -huh. um, so it's like, I think the, the general ethos of the record is to express some feeling of um, isolation and solitude and alienation. Mm. Um, so I think it's just, you know, different people have different ways of coping. Right. Right. So, I, I feel like this is kind of like a coping record. And this is also why like this this album is kind of great for the moment. It has the catharsis of the violent version where he's screaming and being loud and, you know, just going for it. And then there's also the fragility of um, the, the quiet version. But ultimately, I think it's it's really about expressing the same sort of states of alienation. 
Yeah, that's something that I think in these early stages really spoken to me is the fact that there's a despondency which can manifest as both a real fragility and somberness and also just like an outward facing rage and they can be two sides of the same coin and kind of vacillate back and forth which is really beautiful yeah it's totally relevant to what we as a civilization are experiencing right now you know there are days where i feel i feel a lot of rage at the murderous response of the u.s government to the pandemic and then there's other days where i feel you know a very sort of quietude um you know, walking around my neighborhood with like empty streets and everything is very quiet. And you realize how, how fragile um, our existence is. Hmm. Um, how has your cultural consumption been during this period? I and mean, as you say, it's such a surreal time. And I think there's a lot of negative emotions that are tied into how people are currently feeling about this situation, and rightly so, given the government responses across the world mm-hmm. and in particular in the US and the UK. In terms of the culture that you're taking in at the moment, I, I, I seem to be observing quite a divergence and it's you know all down to personal preference, obviously, but between people whose consumption of, say, film, music, whatever, it's mm-hmm. kind of leaning into the, these emotions and sort of mirroring how they're manifesting in them and people who are leaning towards having a balm or something that drags them away from this mm-hmm. state of anxiety and, and, you know, being unsettled. What does that look like for you? What are you being drawn towards at the moment? Yeah, I think that uh, myself, like many other people, are looking for um, moments of catharsis. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I think also on the same turn, um, people are looking for comfort. Um, I find myself wanting to make things that are beautiful. Like mm. I want to, I want to make music that is like beautiful and comforting to people, which is a little bit different than, you know, how I usually go about things. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of like the things that I've been consuming media wise, I've honestly like been trying to just support my friends a lot. Mm-hmm. So buying um, releases. Um, I just bought um, the new um, release from Room 40 Shoots uh, label, the Beatrice uh, Ferreira uh-huh. record, um, which is very great. So, you know, really um, trying to be as local and ethical in my consumption as possible, like supporting filmmakers uh, that I know and I like and um, like independent films. Uh, and same thing with with music, you know, supporting my peers, supporting my heroes, um, supporting living artists who are producing work in this moment is for me the thing that I've, I've been really consciously trying to do. Um, I've been reading a lot. Uh, I've been reading a lot of books more than I have been able to in the last couple of years, which is sad, but true. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I recently finished uh, The Mushroom at the End of the World by Anna Singh Lowenhaupt, which is a ba- which is basically about like the possibilities of, well, it's about like the economics and sort of like disaster capitalism and how mushrooms relate to that. Whoa. Um, 
yeah, it's really, really fascinating book. Um, really well researched. Because, you know, like mushrooms, mushrooms consume dead matter, right? So they're a regenerative force, um, which I think is very fascinating. I've also read, uh, I'm currently reading Morton Feldman's autobiography, Send My Regards to Eighth Street. Um, I've read some Patti Smith. Uh, I've read a number of things. Nice. That's a really nice reading list. So a lot of biographies there. In fact, I think I've been on a similar track of getting into biographies recently. I'm currently on the Herbie Hancock one. Um, oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah. I read, um, I read a great memoir also um, by Sally Mann, the um, American photographer. I have a degree in photography, so it's always... But it's always really interesting to read um, autobiographies of artists um, to get a, a, an appreciation for what they um, have experienced. Yeah, I, I think when it resonates right, I always come away wanting to create or rethinking my own process. I mean, is there um, mm -hmm. any biographies that have been particularly resonant for you? Yeah, I mean, the Sally Mann book was, was really great. Um, she endured a lot of controversy in the 1990s for photographing her children in the nude. And... She was really super, super maligned by, um, you know, the right wing and accused of like all sorts of horrible, horrible stuff. But her body of work is just absolutely incredible. Wow. Um, and, yeah. And she and also, I mean, it won a National Book Award. So it's it's actually like a really well written account of um, her experience and her family history and how her family history figures into the way that she approaches um, her photography so yeah wow. well, that sounds interesting i'm not familiar with her work but i'll give that a, a little look um yeah i definitely recommend it and i mean her photographs are just incredible wicked right i'm gonna dive in um one other question i had we've been talking about live music or the absence thereof at the moment um am i right in thinking you were on the same bill as Heino KG last year, is that right, in Hungary? I was, yeah, I got to open for him um, at UH Festival in Budapest. Um, and it was really, like, it was really cool for me. I felt very shy, and, I mean, he, he really is a hero for me. Yeah. And um, it was cool to be able to open for him. It was an extreme honor. Wicked. And how was his performance as well? It was awesome. <laughs> Surprise. You know... Honestly, like I've seen him play a number of times and some times are better than others, but this was one of the, this was probably the most amazing one that I've seen. Wicked. He was playing with um, Bandy Palax. Yeah. Probably, totally mispronouncing this person's name. Sorry, Bandy. But they, and uh, Bandy is a drummer. Um, and it was just so, so beautiful. Like I, I really, it was exactly what I needed and it was the last um, date of my two-week tour so yeah that was super cool wow good way to kind of rinse off tour i guess because um Valus pandy is thunderous as well isn't he he's like such a drummer oh yeah he's awesome great well leah i mean one more question in fact on black blues is there a particular track that sticks out to you on this this album um i think the maybe one of my favorites is um on the soft version uh the tune see that my grave is kept clean hmm. um, i i think this one is just it is so evocative to me like i just when i hear it i just 
I, all these images and colors kind of get into my mind and it really feels like, it feels like walking around by yourself in Tokyo at dawn um, with nobody in the streets and, you know, it really has some interesting evocative aspects. Yeah. I think duration plays into that as well, right? It's like, what is it 14 minutes long, that piece? Yeah, it's a long track for sure. And it's very repetitive, you know, it's very, you know, the same thing and yeah, God, that track is so good. (laughs) Yeah. The walking around at dawn thing is such a spot on image. I think just him kind of loitering on those chords and his, his vocal delivery as well is just chilling during that track. Um, yeah. I mean, oh. that whole record, it's really amazing to see the range of um, Hino's voice. Right. You know? Yeah. Like, it can go from being like a sawtooth, like, thing that rips somebody in half to the most, like, gentle, cooing, you know, whisper. <laughs> it's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's really. I, I mean, I, in fact, as soon as I listened to this piece, I looked up the possibility of buying it, but don't currently have 85 pound i should have expected that it being like a out of print kg oh. Hino record you know yeah i bet people <laughs> on TikToks are you know rubbing their hands plating that quite a bit yeah yeah <laughs> Well, Leah, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your three records and what you've been working on as well. It's been great to speak to you. Yeah, thanks. You too. Thanks so much for having me on. And if people, once again, if people want to check out your music and Acoustic Shadows as well, uh, where's the best place for them to keep up to speed with what you're doing? You know, I maintain an Instagram account. Um, Probably that. Cool. (laughs) That'll do. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks once again. And to everyone listening, I'll see you next time. Goodbye. Okay. Cheers. Bye.